My name is Kent. I'm one of the staff here, and I also come because I need to be rescued and feel tossed about in the waves sometimes, knowing that unless God grabs me and pulls me up out of the water and sets my feet on a rock, I'm going to go down. And so I'm glad that you're all here to do that with me today. And because of that, I believe I should be prayed for and you should be prayed for. So I I offer you this prayer. The Lord be with you. So we've been thinking about what the good life looks like. And we've been doing that by studying the book of Acts. And we've taken a little detour into the book of Philippians. Because we wanted to try to drill down into like one specific congregation that was trying to live out their mission and what kind of encouragement they were receiving to live that mission out. So we're looking at the church that was in Philippi, and we're going to continue that today by looking at chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to open that up or grab a Bible out of the chair in front of you or open up your phone, your app, your iPad, whatever you've got to read with. It's great if you can follow along. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, and I'm going to start reading with verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Have you ever gone the wrong way? Anybody ever driven the wrong way down a one-way street? Run the wrong direction? Felt like your life took a wrong turn. I've got a little clip of someone who went the wrong way, and if you were a football fan, you might remember this infamous play. Number five, worst play of all time. 
Jim Marshall's Wrong Way Run. Is there anything worse than watching Jim Marshall run the wrong way in an NFL game? There's nothing worse than that. Nothing. There's no play ever. You can't even find a play more humiliating than that play. Stops, throws, completes it to Kilmer up at the 30-yard line. Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. I'm always rooting for the D lineman who picks up the fumble. Seeing the ball loose, seeing the goalpost kind of triggered, you know, pick it up and run. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. And he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. Thinks he scored a touchdown. He scored a safety. How foolish did he feel when he got in the end zone and turned around, waiting for his teammates to mob him? And they're like, you idiot, what have you done? Jim. You ran the wrong way. One of the 49er players came up and, and said, Thanks, Jim. Uh, you knew right away. You really messed up this time. Just read his body language as he's standing there. Like, oh my gosh. The wrong way. Jim Marshall actually had a really successful NFL career, but he got a nickname from that one play that followed him the rest of his career. He was called Wrong Way Marshall. Everybody, I mean, I guess you can never let a guy live that down. So as I was reading through Philippians chapter 3 this week, I got to thinking about, am I running the wrong way? That's the question that kept coming to my mind. Is there a direction that I'm supposed to go, and am, am I, oops, I want the wrong way sign. Now I can't go backwards. Am I running the wrong way? Now, Paul has been telling us about living on mission and what it's like to live on mission. And as he gets wound up into this topic, you see that his passion starts to build. He really wants to help people figure out that there is better and worse ways for us to run our race. And he wants to make sure that everybody's running the right way. Now, he is talking to this particular congregation in Philippi, but it's clear that this isn't the only congregation that has ever had problems with running the wrong way. That it's kind of a common theme for Paul to talk about running the race, and in this particular congregation, he's talking to them about a group of Jewish teachers who had come to them and had said, in order for them to truly be Christian, they need to perform the law properly. They need to live up to the law, and one law in particular that they need to live up to was the law of circumcision. Now, in order for them to be saved, these teachers would say, you got to follow this practice. Now, this was kind of a tough pill to swallow. Most of the Christians in Philippi were Gentiles. They had never been circumcised before. And these teachers are saying, now you've got to do this. Paul is so frustrated with this teaching that he bluntly states that this is not the path to salvation. This is a path to mutilation. And he calls these teachers dogs and evildoers. He's got lots of nasty things to say about them. He does not want these people to follow this path because it's the wrong way. They're going to earn their salvation by keeping the law, and Paul is absolutely convinced that it's not true. And this is really strong words coming from Paul. Remember, he's a Jew. He gives us his pedigree here in the next couple verses. All his life, circumcision has been really important. Circumcision was something God told these people they were supposed to do. You have to follow through on this, and it's a sign of God's blessing on you. And if you don't do it, you're out. This was part of Paul's upbringing, part of the environment that he grew up with. This was always important. So now it seems like quite a change when he says, Hey, 
circumcision, wrong way, don't do that, you don't need to do that. So I'm curious about what's going on here. Thankfully, Paul goes on to explain it. Paul says, salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. This is the message that Paul gives consistently to this church and to other churches, that your salvation is not earned. You can't earn God's approval. You can't work hard enough. You can't obey enough. You can't follow close enough in order to earn God's approval. Paul wants everyone to get a grip on this truth. If you're not accepting this truth, then you're going the wrong way. Paul says this because he knows that we are people who are prone to try to earn our way by our own strength. He knows that we are people who are prone to try to earn God's approval, to try to live up to God's expectations. He knows this because he's lived that way a good chunk of his life. And if this was true in Paul's day, I think it might even be more true in our day because we live in a world that's very big on self-sufficiency, on making your own way. Just to test my theory, finish these Proverbs for me. When the going gets tough, the early bird gets, quitters never win, and God helps those who... We are nurtured in our culture, on the power of self-reliance. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you're going to make it happen, it's up to you. This is the kind of message that we live all the time. Um, Interestingly, George Carlin once had something to say to this, about this. He said this, he said, I went to a bookstore and asked the saleswoman, where's the self-help section? She said if she told me, it would defeat the purpose. Let me set something straight just in case it's not completely clear. God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. Okay? The Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is not about self-reliance. The, God, the Bible is not about earning your own way. The Bible is not about earning salvation. The Bible is not about living a good life so that God will approve you. That's not what the Bible's about. And Paul knows this better than any of us because Paul lived the bigger chunk of his life with this kind of attitude that he had to be a keeper of the law, an obeyer of the law in order to earn God's approval. This is what he's getting at in the middle of the little section that we read here today. He's like, if anybody has uh, reason to be confident in the flesh, he says, I have reason to be confident in the flesh, he says, But then he adds, we who boast in Christ put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself could have. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, good work. Of the people of Israel, good for him. Of the tribe of Benjamin, good for him. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, he was persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul did everything right. And he did it because he thought this was necessary in order for him to earn God's approval. That's what he means by putting confidence in his flesh. 
Paul discovered firsthand that it's pointless to trust in himself and to trust in any good that he does to earn God's approval. He would say, that is running the wrong way. That's not the direction we're supposed to say. In fact, he thinks that good deeds are actually worse than useless. He refers to them as trash. They need to be thrown out. Paul says, I spent my life doing all what was right and keeping the rules and being religious. I was obedient. But then he met Jesus. And in an instant, everything changed. All these shining accomplishments, all these pious acts that he performed were no more than a pile of rubbish. The word that he uses here is actually a really strong word. Um, I think the strongest word you'll let me say here in public is manure. It's a pile of... If you were at home, you would all say the word, (laughs) right? The word in verse 8 only appears one time in all of Scripture. It's probably for good reason because it's kind of a raw, gross, kind of barnyard, earthy kind of word. Paul recognizes that his world is turned upside down because all of his efforts to try to earn God's approval are like a pile of manure. One of my mentors in seminary on preaching was a guy named Fred Craddock, and he told this interesting story about a missionary family in China who was forced to leave their home one day. Soldiers came knocking on the door, and they said, you've got two hours to clear out. And he told this missionary and his wife, you can take 200 pounds. And so for the next two hours, the missionary and his wife and their children were scrambling around the house trying to figure out what to take, Here's a, a, an heirloom, a vase that's important to the family. Here's a typewriter, and it's brand new. We're not going to probably buy another typewriter. Here's uh, this and that and some books that were important. They, they got a pile, and they took everything into the bathroom and waited on the scale until they had exactly 200 pounds. And there was lots of arguing about it. Two hours later, the soldiers returned, and they asked, Are you ready? And they said, Yeah, we are. Did you weigh everything? And they said, Yes, we did. 200 pounds, and they said, yes, exactly. And then the soldiers asked, did you weigh your kids? They said no. In an instant, all the stuff they had piled in the corner was worthless. Worthless to them. There's only one thing that had value. This is the power of what Craddock calls the moment of truth. When your world has changed so dramatically that all of a sudden you see something completely different than how you used to see it. Paul used to say, I can earn God's approval, and I am. And then he had a moment of truth, and in that moment of truth he says, all those efforts to earn God's approval, worthless. There's only one thing that has worth. There's only one thing that has value. The rest of it has to be thrown out with the trash. Paul says this in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that adds value. What he determined in this moment was that there was one way, and that way was Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that mattered. That's the only thing that had value from this. And from this point on, the only thing that Paul pursues then is knowledge of this Jesus Christ. And to know more and more about how God saved him through the work of Christ. 
You see, for the first part of his life, Paul was always saying, you know, look at me, look at me, look at what I have done for God, would have been his posture. From this point on, he's saying, look at God, look at God, look at what he has done in Christ. Know Christ more fully. And then something kind of unexpected happens for me when I'm dwelling in this passage. It takes a little twist. After talking about what God has done in Christ and the the surpassing value, the ultimate worth of this, and how everything else is like trash. Then Paul says, so press on, run the race, try harder. And I'm reading this and I'm like, well, this sounds like he's right back to where he started with trying to earn God's approval, trying to measure up to achieve salvation. I thought Paul had just given that up. Now he's telling us again, go, work hard, press on, try hard. I'm trying to figure out what Paul means by that. And the verse that really caught my eye was verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. And the word press on here is a word that's really uh, engaged and energetic. It's like pursue, chase after, Go for it. Work hard. Grab this thing. That's the kind of pressing on that he's talking about. And he starts to use um, athletic talk, which Paul uses quite a bit in, this, in the next few verses. He says this, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. That's a, that's a running term, like an athletic, like I'm going to press on with all of my energy. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. That's the idea of like what I get when I'm a a victorious in an athletic competition. To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Um, And Paul does this a lot. He uses this race talk, this imagery of athletic competition. And I wonder when he uses this if he wasn't thinking about the Greek marathon, which would have been the kind of most common athletic, one of the common athletic events, running the marathon. Do you know the history of marathon? Marathon comes from the Greeks, and it comes from around the year 490 B.C., and it comes from a Greek messenger named Phidippides. I just like saying that name, Phidippides. Apparently, there was a gigantic Persian army that landed on the plain of Marathon, and they threatened to wipe out the Greek culture. And the city of Athens was only 25 miles from where these armies landed and they were vastly outnumbered but the the Greeks knew that their whole existence was at stake and so they mustered up a little army and they went off to fight the Persians and it was like odds against them they were vastly outnumbered vastly outmanned but they were fighting for their homeland and they won and this was such great good news that Phidippides took off running to go back to Athens to tell everyone that the battle had been victorious. And he ran the entire 25 miles across the plain of Marathon back to the city, never once stopping to take on any kind of red, fruity energy drink. And when he arrived at Athens, he was exhausted and tired and spent, and he burst into the city council, and with his last breath, he shouted, Rejoice! We conquered! And then he collapsed and died. And there's been lots of speculation about why Pheidippides died, and most of them say he died with a smile on his face. And they think that he died not because of the exhaustion, 
but he ran, he died because his heart burst for joy because he recognized that the city had been saved, the whole Greek civilization had been saved. That's a good story. I like that story. The Greek word for gospel is good news. And it's this kind of good news, the kind of good news that you would run a marathon to tell other people, that you would run yourself to death in order to tell other people. It's too good to keep to yourself. You have to share it with somebody. I think of the kind of running that um, Peter and John did on Easter Sunday when they heard rumors about an empty tomb and they ran with all they had to go discover that the tomb was empty. And then I think about them running back with this good news to the disciples who were huddled in fear and they burst in and they said, Rejoice! The tomb is empty. He's risen. That's the kind of running that the good news brings. This is what Paul is talking about in this passage. That the the good news that I don't have to earn God's approval, the good news that God loves me is so good, I run, press on, don't stop. Straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of God in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of running that Jesus, that Paul invites us to do. Hot pursuit, relentless running down. And you know, it started with Jesus in hot pursuit of Paul. You remember that trip he was taking to Damascus to persecute Christians, to demonstrate his zeal, to try to earn God's approval? And Jesus was relentless in pursuing him and found him on the Damascus road and, and knocked him down. And then when Paul was blind and weak and humiliated, in this state, he met Jesus. And that might have been the first day that he realized he can't earn God's approval. God's already chasing him down and Jesus loves him and Jesus is ready to welcome him and embrace him. And from that day, he changes the way that he runs. He runs to know Jesus, not to earn God's approval. And this is the race that Paul invites us to run all the way to the finish, to never give up. And when we know really great good news, then pressing on is not a chore. It's a joy. It's a delight. The pursuit of Jesus and knowing Jesus motivates us not out of guilt or shame or the need to earn God's favor, but just from the wonder of it. You know, we are people who are sometimes prone to pursuing less valuable things, aren't we? We, we are prone to run the wrong way. We have to admit that. And we end up floating out into Lake Michigan and then our, there's nothing under our feet and somebody has to, then we know we, we went the wrong way. Somebody has to rescue us from that. And that's been true for every generation. C.S. Lewis from a, generations ago wrote about this and said some really great things about our, how easily we are pers- pleased by some of these pursuits. We are content with spam when steak is on the menu. We fool around with things. This is what he writes. We fool around with things, little things, like drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Once you have seen the ocean, you can't be satisfied playing in a mud puddle. 
This is what Paul is saying. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize, the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't just run in a different direction now. Paul actually runs in a different manner. It changes the way that he runs. It's not just where he's running to, but how he runs. Some of you see me running around the neighborhood, which I try to do just about every day. I do this not because I love running, just so you know. Um, If you're ever wondering why I'm usually not smiling while I'm running, because I don't really love it. I'm running under threat from the doctor. Because a few years ago, the doctor said, if you don't get your diabetes under control, you're going to have to take shots every day. And I do not like the idea of taking shots. And so I discovered that exercise is one of the best ways for me to maintain a good blood sugar. And so I run to avoid getting shots. That's why I run. This is not a great motivation, I'll tell you that. Sometimes I put a little race out there or something, a target on the horizon, so I got something to work toward. But usually I'm running mad and grumpy. That's how I'm running, blaming the doctor with every step. Christians sometimes run their race that way. I don't know if you ever have. I know that I have sometimes run my Christian life mad and grumpy, thinking I have to bear down and get it right or God won't approve of me, or you won't approve of me. This is not the way Paul invites us to run. Paul says we're supposed to run with joy. Uh, Most of you who have been reading through the book of Philippians, many of you have made comments to me about, wow, this really is a joyful book. This is incredible because Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Paul doesn't know what's coming down the road. It's probably not a good end for him. And yet this book is brimming with joy. This is because Paul has identified a different way to run. Not out of grit your teeth trying harder. Not to to bear down and press on out of obligation. Not to just do it to try to satisfy some other person. But rather to do it because he loves Jesus. And because he wants to know more about Jesus. And so he runs this race and he presses on and he strains toward the finish line with every ounce of energy in relentless pursuit to know Jesus better. That's how he runs. Doesn't that sound like a great way to run the race? This is not a battle that has to be conquered by gritting your teeth and trying harder because the good news is this. Jesus has already won the race. And when we get to know him more and more, we recognize Because he's won the race, we have won the race. That's the good news that Paul wants us to remember. You know what the traditional prize is for winning a marathon? Anybody? I've got a picture of it here. The traditional prize is after running that far, you get a laurel wreath. It's like olive branches woven together and put on your head. (laughs) Woo-hoo! Is the wreath the thing that motivates you to run? Uh Uh-uh. That's the victory. She's smiling because she won the victory. And this is what Paul is saying to us. Rejoice! The Lord has conquered. Rejoice! This is good news. 
Press on. Keep running the race to the finish. Keep running the race because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Keep running the race because it's a joy. And this is how Paul ran the race. This is how he invites us to race. Listen to one last passage. This is from the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's probably, most people think, it's probably the last words that Paul ever wrote. He probably wrote these words just a short time before he was finally executed for his faith. This is what he wrote. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to you who are also running this race. Would you like to win that prize? Then press on. Lord God, we come before you today and we give you thanks because you are a great and good God. Thank you for your love for us and for the way that you have continued to pour that love down upon us. We thank you, God, that you have given us your son, Jesus, so that through faith in him we can receive this as a free gift. And God, we pray that you'll help us then by the power of your Holy Spirit to run the race well that you have laid out before us. And we will give you thanks in his name. Amen.